Well, let's just start with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into it. <clears throat> Once again, Lord, we have gathered here with you, and we thank you that your spirit is present, that you have given your spirit to us to empower us, to redeem us, to open our eyes so that we can read scripture and see you, the Father, the Son, all revealed in it. So we thank you for the church, the church that has persisted now for over 2,000 years, that we are a part of it, that we are blessed by you as we are in it. May your spirit continue to strengthen and sustain it. Give us wisdom and encouragement as we continue to look at those who have gone before us, who have struggled, who have fought, who have died, who have suffered, but also who have succeeded and triumphed in your name. So I pray, I pray that you will bless this time. In the name of the Spirit, and in the name of your Son, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Okay. I have a confession to make. Um, actually, two things. Brandon, can you snag me a pen? I forgot to grab a pen. I'm sorry. Perfect. Doug's got one. Thanks, Doug. Uh, I didn't even think about that. Okay, uh, so my confession is such. I... We had sort of originally mapped this class out. And in theory, today, the bulk of what I was going to talk about refer to two leaders in the early church, uh, Augustine and John Chrysostom. Those names may or may not be familiar to you. But I was going to spend about 20 minutes or so talking about uh, some other important people in the church. Uh, and when I got up this morning to prepare my notes, I found that three pages in, I had way too much to talk about. As far I, So I am not going to talk about Augustine and Chrysostom today. We're going to kick that down to the next lesson. So uh, forgive me for if, uh, well, as we, as we work our way through this. So, um, so that being said... Where we left off last week was with the Council of Nicaea and uh, the Nicene Creed being uh, drafted and uh, promulgated out to the church. And, and so we have seen a, a radical shift in a couple of ways. One, we have seen the emperor of Rome for the first time now professing faith. And Constantine ultimately... Does, when he initially associates with the church, he's just associating with the church. He is not proclaiming he is a Christian. But by the end of his life, he will be baptized. So he is the first truly Christian emperor. Now, I don't know what his heart condition was, but in terms of any formal affiliation and, and profession, he was a Christian by the end of his life. So that's a huge watershed for the church, and we're going to talk about some of the, the negative aspects of that today. But then, under his auspices, the council is convened, which can, includes leaders of the churches from all over the entire Roman Empire. So who's there? 
Well, you have Athanasius, who we mentioned last week, and we'll talk about just briefly again today. You have Athanasius and his mentor, Alexander, who was the leader of the church in Alexandria, which was a major center of Christian worship. Alexandria is right there in Egypt. And, I mean, just as a side note, in the Gospels, when we read about Joseph and Mary taking the baby Jesus down to Egypt to escape from the persecutions of Herod, it's probable, it's likely that they went to Alexandria because there was a large Jewish community there. So that was the center, almost the, the largest group of Jews outside of Judea was in Alexandria, Egypt. That's where the Septuagint comes from. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, that was written several hundred years prior to the birth of Christ. That's all coming out of Alexandria. So it's, it's unlikely that Joseph and Mary would have gone and just lived along the Nile River somewhere farming. They probably would have went to live with all the Jews in Alexandria. So just something to think about and as we think about Christmas and the birth of Christ. Um, so Alexander and Athanasius are at the council. Santa Claus, as I said last week, is also at the council of Nicaea. He is the bishop of Smyrna, which is right here in Asia. I don't know if you guys can see that red dot. Um, and he is present at the council. Two representatives of the Pope, who at this time is not the Pope, but he is the Bishop of Rome. He is the leader of the church in Rome. His name is Sylvester. But he sends two representatives to the council. There is another man who is, who is really one of my favorite people in the history of the church, but he is largely unknown. And his name is Osius of Cordoba. And Cordoba being down here in Spain... And so just from looking at who is in attendance, I mean, and there's people from, bishops from all over the empire present at this council. So this is the first of what we call the ecumenical councils, of which there are generally seven. And we're going to talk about these more a little later as we get into when they kind of start coming fast and furious. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on it now, but basically ecumenical comes from the Latin, uh, is the Latin word for the Greek word oikumene, which means house of the world. So the oikumene was a, a Greek concept that basically meant the inhabited world. And to be inhabited, you had to be a rational person to inhabit something. If you were not rational, if you were a barbarian, then you were not really a person as far as the Greeks were concerned. So when they say the house of the world, the ecumenical world, they're talking about the civilized world is what they're saying. So this is the first council of the civilized world, of the entire Roman Empire and even a few outside of those bounds from Parthia and Persia and such. Now remember what happened in Acts 15. What we call the Council of Jerusalem. That was the first council of the leaders of the church. So the gathering of these leaders is not something that is without precedent in Scripture. So they're going to look back to, to Acts and they're going to see how 
all the apostles that were living, and Paul, you know, Paul and Peter and other people, Barnabas, are all going to gather in Jerusalem to debate certain issues. So this Council of Nicaea is being convened to debate certain issues. Are you raising your hand? Okay, I saw it going up and down. I wasn't sure, so sorry, go ahead. So the ecum- so initial so that was the initial meaning of the word ecumenical. So I mean it literally just is the Latin form of oikumene or the civilized world, the inhabited the house of the world. But over time as these councils progress they're going to come to that that term is going to come to emphasize less the civilized world and more all the Christians wherever they are in the world. And then as the church is going to begin some of its major, what we call schisms or splits, that the term ecumenical is going to come to have an even greater meaning, which is that it means all the Christians of whatever the stripe. I mean, there's, you know, there's three major traditions within Christianity. There's Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Protestant. Now there's, I gotta watch my words here. There are problems with all three. There are difficulties with all three. I mean, our church is a Protestant church, but within the Protestant camp, there's also Universalist Unitarians. So I mean, obviously we don't share a lot in common with them. So when I say there are problems with all three, you know, Part of the problem of Protestantism, and I'm really digressing here, but part of the problem with Protestantism, and it's a blessing and a curse, is we don't have a central authority. So what that does is that allows different traditions to develop without somebody keeping the ship steered in one direction. So Catholicism hasn't changed its teachings haven't changed a heap since 1546, which was the year of the Council of Trent. That's really the year the Roman Catholic Church was born. But, you know, they don't have a debate in Roman Catholicism between Arminianism and Calvinism, which is a debate we have in the Protestant Church. They don't have a debate over the divinity of Christ which unfortunately is a, divin- a debate we have in quote-unquote Protestant churches as we obviously affirm the divinity of Christ, as do all you know, the Catholic and Orthodox churches. But within Protestant churches, there are churches that have gotten so liberal that they don't really care about the divinity of Christ anymore. Does that make sense? So that's what I'm saying. There's problems with all three traditions. Um, wow, I really got off course there. Yeah, but it still, it's still, it still retains the, the kernel of its original meaning, which was the whole church. So the, the ecumenical movement today is a movement that's trying to find common ground between Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox churches. An ecumenical council back in the fourth century that we're talking about is still looking for 
common ground on the apostles' teaching that everyone can affirm and articulate. So it's the same sense as there. The unity of the churches, basically, is, is really what it's getting at. Okay, where was I? Um, yeah, so, so Nicaea is convened, and we'll get to the notes, trust me. This is the product of me shifting gears about 45 minutes ago. Um, the, the Council of Nicaea is convened, and ultimately it will repute Arianism. Rep, repudiate. Sorry, that's a very important distinction there. There is no repute for Arianism. It is of no reputation. Um, it's going to repudiate Arianism. So what again is Arianism? It is the teaching that Christ is the first created being of God and through whom then all other things are created. So as Arius taught, and he liked to put in his songs, there once was a time when Christ was not. He is not eternal. He is not God. So they are denying the divinity of Christ. And you remember the great distinction between these is the clarion call of homoousius, which is what we affirm that God and that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that hasn't really entered into the discussion quite yet, but we're going to get there today. But the Father and the Son are of the same essence. They are, as it says in John, literally in the Greek, in John 1.1, what the Father was, the Word was. And that's in eternity past and in eternity future. They are the same. And what the Arians are going to say is, no, it is homoousius, which means similar substance. And you literally can't translate John 1.1 to say that. It doesn't say what God was, the word was like. It doesn't say that. Literally, in the Greek, it can't say that. So they have a problem, but they, they have their reasons why they are articulating this perspective. But the Council of Nicaea is going to come together, and they are almost unanimously, other than Arius, there's going to be two bishops that vote against affirming the creed, which is a repudiation of Arianism. They are going to draft the creed, search the scriptures, compose it, and then vote on it. And it's going to then become kind of the statement of faith for the church to go out through the church. And it's something that as you read through it, we as a church still affirm our church's statement of faith fits right in line with the Nicene Creed. It is the basic table upon which all the three great traditions of Christianity still maintain agreement. So whether you're Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, conservative Protestant, I should say, uh, we all affirm that. Now, we have lots of differences, but they're going to flow beyond that. So, <clears throat> uh, so that the creed is passed. However, however, Constantine, when, and seemingly the day is won by Arianism, and so this is where we're going to get into following last, the last time I taught our, what we discussed. Following the Council of Nicaea, ultimately, Constantine will pass. And it's important to emphasize Constantine was a soldier emperor. He was not a theologian. 
So that's going to be, that, that's important because he is not training his sons in the word. He, I mean, he is out literally fighting battles on pretty much a constant daily basis on the frontiers against other emperors in the Tetrarchy and so on. Constantine is, is, what he is concerned with is theological unity. He wants everyone to agree. He wants everyone to submit, politically, he wants everyone to submit to his authority, and he wants the church to figure it out, as he would kind of say. He wants them to all agree, and they are all going to agree that what the apostles taught is what is reflected in the Nicene Creed, or the Nicene Creed reflects what the apostles taught, that Christ is God. And that he and the Father are one. And that the Holy Spirit is also God. And that it and the Son and the Father are also one. This is what the totality of Scripture affirms. And, you know, sometimes I've run into people that get really frustrated that, you know, they, have, they really wrestle with the doctrine of the Trinity. And they say, well, there's nowhere in the Bible that where it says Trinity, and that's true. As we talked about, Tertullian was the first one to use, to, he made, coined that word to describe what the Bible taught. But the way I look at it, and I think this is the way the church fathers all looked at it, is God is eternal. He is bigger than us. He is bigger than the world. And I don't mean this in a blasphemous way, but he is bigger than the Bible. I mean, he is the, the source of the Bible. Like the incarnation, it has come down to us, but he's bigger than it. I mean, he is eternal, and the word is also eternal. We know that. But he, he is the source of it. And so it makes sense to me that you, there's not one verse that we look to that says, this is what it is, but it's the totality of Scripture. It's it's. From beginning to end, you see the Trinity in the, the creation account in Genesis, and you see the creation through every single book. I mean, you see, not the creation, I mean, you see that too, but you see the Trinity through every single book of the Bible. You can point to and say, there is, there is God, there is the Father, there is the Son. You know, I mean, you can see that, the, the, you know, in the Old Testament, there is a great study of how the Word of God or the angel of Yahweh, they're all given divine attributes. So you can see this through, all, through the entire Old Testament and through the New Testament, obviously with Christ more centered as its focus in his deity and oneness with the Father affirmed throughout and in pretty complex ways. So it makes sense that the, enti- the testimony of the entirety of Scripture is the testimony to the unity of, of God and the three persons of God. Does that make sense? He's bigger than just one word. I find that actually very encouraging. So, <clears throat> um, so anyway, the, the reason I brought up Constantine being a soldier emperor is because he, his sons are going to succeed him as emperors. He has three sons and all three will succeed him but ultimately, the final, and, and they're actually going to get into a bit of a, a scuffle, a civil war over who is going to be the only one to succeed Constantine. And ultimately, it will be his son, 
Constantius II. And why is he important? I mean, one of the reasons he's important is because he still affirmed Arianism. And so, through his patronage, Arianism is actually going to experience a resurgence and become, through imperial diktat, the preferred form of the church as far as the Roman government is concerned. And this is where I said the dark side of having an emperor who is a Christian, or quote-unquote Christian, is now the power of the state can be brought to bear, not to persecute the church, but to dictate what the church believes. And so now you have a new wrinkle. And so the church is going to have to stand firm, not just against false teaching, but false teaching being advocated by the only government there is in the world. I mean, it's the universal empire. So we often call Athanasius, or we say of him, Athanasius against the world. So because he is seemingly going to be the only one standing firm against the imperial administration's advocacy for Arianism. The, the emperors are going to intervene and say, oh, does that guy affirm Nicaea? Well, he can't lead the church in Rome, or he can't lead the church in Constantinople. We prefer this guy. And so before you know it, most of the churches throughout the empire are going to be headed by, and therefore taught by, Arians. So now you have the dark side of Constantine's conversion. It may have been better for the church if he had never converted. But that's all within God's plan. That's in his sovereignty that this happens. So we just have to look at the results of that. So, And I don't think you can judge Constantine for what his sons are going to do subsequent to, to his death. So anyway, so today what I want to look at is the struggles of... When I say Athanasius against the world, it seemed like that. But there were actually many others that were fighting shoulder to shoulder with him. Mostly towards the end of his life, but some concurrently with him. And then they will pick up the mantle from Athanasius and carry it forward, ultimately to the final repudiation of Arianism. So that's what I want to talk about today. That was a long prologue. Okay. So, the, the, the locus of resistance to Arianism outside of Athanasius in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. And you'll notice here on this map, this area is a slightly darker shade than this area. And that is a result of the Tetrarchy. Remember where Diocletian broke the empire into four chunks east and west, with a junior emperor in both east and west. It's going to become the practice of the emperors following Constantine to appoint a brother or somebody else to rule with them. So you'll, through much of the 4th century, which is the 300s, you'll have emperor in the east, emperor in the west. And they're, they're the same administration, but that way you have somebody whose family looking after interests on the, you know, the, the, the western frontier and the eastern frontier. So, uh, 
Lost my train of thought again. So uh, the East is going to be, the, the resistance other than Athanasius to Arianism is going to be led by a group that we call the Cappadocian Fathers. And Cappadocia is this area right here. And it is mentioned in the New Testament. So some of you may be familiar with that already. And there's three men that are the Cappadocian fathers. There is uh, Basil of Caesarea. He's often called Basil the Great. His younger brother, Gregory of Nyssa. And then Basil's best friend is a man named Gregory of Nazianzus. And these three men are going to be writing prolifically to articulate a Nicene uh, teaching of the deity of Christ. And, and a lot of other things too. And Basil himself is actually going to be one of, on the forefront of the, the teaching of the Holy Spirit as that is the third part of the Trinity. Now that was already taught. It was already uh, taught in the church, but since the apostles, I mean, you, and you read through the New Testament and the Old Testament, and you see this, the breath of God or the, the wind of God or the spirit of God, all of these things, the ruach in the Old Testament, so, or the pneuma or the paraclete in the, the New Testament, given divine attributes and worshiped. So there's no question that the Holy Spirit is God. But what they're asking is, how do we fit this all together? I mean, what do we make of this? And so Basil is going to make a great contribution, among many things, in really refining the language by which the church was able to articulate the deity of the Holy Spirit. Now, like I said, like Tertullian had already used the word Trinity and was teaching the divinity of the Holy Spirit 150 years prior to Basil doing this. But again, he's refining the language so that everyone can really articulate and try to wrap their heads around what's going on. So, uh, but he's also going to be doing that within the context of contending against Arianism. And so, he is going to write two works that, uh, oh, well, first, if you look at section like A1 there on the front page, he, Basil was very active in dealing with the, the, the imperial administration. And there's one account of how the emperor, Valens at this time was his name, came to Caesarea where Gregor, or Basil was the bishop with the, you know, and was the leader of the church, basically, is what that means. He was, he was the pastor of the church in that city. And he wanted uh, Basil to come and submit to him and receive a gift from the emperor, which was you know, a great honor. Most people never laid eyes on the emperor. But Basil would not do that. He would not receive the emperor or his gift until the emperor had basically set it down on the ground, which was he was relinquishing control of it in, symbolically. And then Basil would go and pick it up. And the emperor, as Basil's picking it up, looks at him and says, 
something to the effect of, you've got a lot of brass. And Basil's response was, perhaps you've never met a real pastor before. So, because he was, he was not going to back down against the most powerful man in the world. So, um, you know, so he was setting a great example. I mean, he really, he was very theologically minded, but he was very pastoral at the same time. And that's something that I find to be a common thread through a lot of these leaders of the church is, in the, in the early days especially, is they, their minds were brilliant and they're grasping with all of these, you know, challenging con- concepts and writing them down in ways that are still helpful to us today. And yet, at the same time, their primary interest is, well, sound teaching, but also the well-being of their charge. You know, God gave them a flock, and they are concerned for the well-being of their flock. So they are both great theologians, but also great pastors. And one of the guys that I was, well, anyway, I'll get to that next week. So, um, so Basil is going to write a lot, but two of the, uh, the greatest works that he has are, one is called Against Eunomius, and the other is On the Holy Spirit. And so a lot of the doctrine that we have of the Holy Spirit is really, again, it's already in Scripture, and the church believed it, but it's really articulated in a way that we can grasp onto for the first time by Basil. Basil. He's really going to focus in on a doctrine, what we would call a pneumatology, a study of the Holy Spirit. Um, but his other work, uh, against Eunomius, Eunomius was the theological leader of the Arians during that day. So he was, he, you know, the, the real power of Arianism was the imperial patronage. You know, the church wasn't just falling prey to Arianism willy-nilly. It was, they were being forced to accept this by the state. So Eunomius, is, he's not really the leader of the, of the Arians, but he's kind of the, the theological lackey of the emperors in a way. And so Basil is just going to unleash a torrent of writing against Eunomius, and that's literally what contra Eunomius means. Um, so, you guys can, I, I included a quote that just gives you a sample of what he's, uh, what he's saying there against uh, Arianism. So, he says, No one knoweth the Father save the Son, and the Spirit searcheth all things. And what can this eminence in knowledge mean if anyone other can comprehend the essence of the deity? It is under the teachings of God's acts and knowing the creator through his works that we arrive at the conception of his wisdom and his goodness. And thus there is no one name which suffices to include the whole nature of God. That's what I'm saying about the breadth of, I mean, the word Trinity is there, but he's saying it's really, it's bigger than one word. It's the entirety of scripture. The entirety of the universe really is is encompassed in that knowledge of who God is and, and the nature of God. Uh, what is the substance of the earth and what is the method by which it is known? If the substance of all things is unknown to us, much more that of God then. The peace of God passeth, passeth 
all understanding, yet Eunomius will not allow that the very substance of God is beyond all understanding and knowledge of man. For my part, I believe that the conception of it passes not only men's understanding, but that of all rational creatures. And by that he's saying, in effect, the mystery of who God is and the, the mystery of the Trinity is revealed to us in Scripture, but ultimately God is infinite and beyond our ability to comprehend. If Christ is not God, and by implication the Trinity is, is moot and doesn't exist, then Christ is a created being and therefore finite and knowable in totality. So he is recognizing that Christ, the Father, the Spirit, they are really beyond our comprehension. We can know them be through what has been revealed to us, but the totality of who and what they are really is beyond our mortal ability to perceive. And Arianism is not. The, we are created. According to them, Christ is created and therefore knowable. I mean, knowable in a finite way, not as God. I hope that's not confusing. Um, and then... He goes on, on at the end of the first page, and this is in a separate work. It's in one of his letters. And I won't read it because it will sound confusing, but I want to just point out two things, and that is this. The, the language that he uses is introducing, he's not the first one to introduce these, but the, 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 vocabulary, of the vocabulary of the church is expanding. So we've already talked about the word ousia when we talked about homoousius and homoousius. And now he's introducing another word, hypostasis. Now these are Greek terms, and I don't want to dwell on them now because when we talk about the councils, and specifically the council of Chalcedon, the term hypostasis is going to be critical. But I just want you to note that, he is that these terms are being introduced now. And ultimately are going to have a great bearing on what lies ahead for the church. So, Basil, uh, oh, and I like this too, because, you know, Arian, Arius, he liked to say there once was a time when Christ was not. Well, Basil has an answer to that, and he says, those who say that the only begotten is a creature of God, and then worship him and call him God, by adoring the creature and not the creator. So by adoring, according to Arianism, Christ is the first thing that was created through whom then all other things were made. But if you worship him, if you're Arian and you worship him, you are worshiping creation and not the creator. So you have already lost the plot. So he says, those who say that the only begotten is a creature of God and then worship him and call him God by adoring the creature, create creature and not the creator, they reintroduce the errors of the heathen and they, they who deny that he is God of God and nominally confessing the Son of God in reality and truth evacuate his existence and renew Judaism. So what he's saying there is, if on one side, if you're an Arian, you're basically a polytheistic pagan. 
because you are worshiping creation and not the creator. So if you, if you reject the deity of Christ, that's what you're doing. But on the other side of things, if you, if you reject the, you know, if you, if you uh, deny, if, if you have, I lost my train of thought, I am so sorry. Basically, if you go in the other direction, you're restoring Judaism. So you, there's the narrow line between the pagans and the Jews, and that's where the church is at. We affirm the full humanity of Christ, and we affirm the deity of Christ. And we affirm the oneness and the distinction of the Father, Son, and Spirit. They each are one separate person, but they are all one God. And the, so what the church teaches is the narrow path between Judaism and pagan, paganism of infinite stripes. So, and Basil rec rep recognized that. So, um, the next of the Cappadocians is Gregory of Nyssa, and he is the younger brother of Basil. And he, Basil's going to actually die fairly young. He's 48 when he dies, and when he does, his younger brother is going to pick up his mantle and continue on. So where, where Basil wrote a book against Eunomius that was a book, one book, Gregory of Nyssa is going to write an expansion of it in 15 books. So he is just going to pound Arius rhetorically into submission. And, and he's going to, to continue the work of his brother uh, but temperamentally, he's very different. Where Basil, as you can see with the encounter with the emperor, he was very engaged in politics. Gregory is really inclined to a life of solitude. He wants to go out into the, the mountains and just live like a hermit and write. So he's, he's going to carry Basil's banner forward rhetorically, argumentatively, theologically, but in terms of his, his uh, engagement in the culture, that's going to fall to the next of the Cappadocians, who I want to talk about a little more, and that is Gregory of Nazianzus. Now, he is not related to Basil or Gregory of Nyssa, but Basil and he were going to be classmates. So Basil had a, a time where he falls away from the church when he was a young man, and he ends up going to Athens, and he ends up studying with all the philosophers there. And that was still, Athens and Alexandria were the two greatest centers of learning in, in the Roman Empire at this time. And so he, Basil's going to receive a world-class education, and so is Gregory of Nazianzus. And they are actually going to be friends, and I know this it sounds strange because it's in today's parlance. They were roommates, so they, they lived together. And, interestingly enough, they lived together with another student who was the name of Julian, who was actually kind of a, I don't know what you call the nephew of a cousin. So whatever that connection is, he was a nephew of a cousin of Constantine. So he's the second, you know, his father's brother's nephew's former roommate. Um, so, <laughs> but Julian... Interestingly enough, and just as an aside, um, he is going to become emperor. 
he's going to be the last of Constantine's dynasty to sit on the throne. And he is going to earn the subricate throughout history of Julian the Apostate. Because he is going to re- re- reject Christianity and try to restore paganism throughout the Roman Empire. He's the last emperor of Rome to be a pagan. He rejects Christianity. He tries to restore all the temples. He, he joins the, the old mystery cults. Crazily enough, he even tries to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem just to repudiate the church. So there almost was a third temple. You know, the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the temple that Jesus was in. The first temple was destroyed in, what, 586 when the Babylonians conquered Judah. So Julian actually tried to rebuild a third temple and restore temple Judaism. Even though he was not a Jew, he did it just to, to rankle the church. But he failed because apparently the ground, this is what, the, you know, tradition holds. The ground kept opening up and fire kept coming out every time the builders tried to go out there to build the temple. So it never got done. Um, <clears throat> so Basil and Gregory then were, were roommates and friends and theological brethren. And they, <clears throat> when, when Basil dies, Gregory is going to, where N- Gregory of Nyssa picked up a lot of the, the uh, theological burden that Basil had borne. Gregory of Nazianzus, same name, I know. And the, he's going to pick up the theological burden as well and the political burden. And he writes so much, again, building on the themes of Basil that Gregory of Nazianzus is often called the theologian. So, I mean, he, he is going to have a profound impact on the church. Uh, <clears throat> and he's the one, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself, I get myself mixed up, but he's the one who's going to give the, uh, you know, the pithy refutation of there once was the time when Christ was not. So, and he will be the one that says, uh, if ever there was a time when the Father was not, then there was a time when the Son was not. If ever there was a time when the Son was not, then there was a time when the Spirit is not, was not. If the one was from the beginning, which it is, then the three were so too. So if, the, if God was from the beginning, then the Father, the Father was from the beginning, then so too by necessity must the Son and the Spirit also be from the eternity past, the beginning beyond our perception. So, uh, <clears throat> when in the year 379, uh, in 378, there was a watershed event in the history of the empire, and that is right here. You remember Constantinople is now the functioning capital of the empire. Right here is a city called Adrianople, or Hadrianopolis. And a group of barbarians had crossed the Danube River, called the Goths. And the emperor, Valens, which was the same emperor that Basil had confronted, is going to go out to fight them and expel them from the empire. Except things didn't go as planned. And his entire army is annihilated, 
and he himself, the emperor, is going to die on the battlefield. And it's a, it's, it's a major disaster that historians often point to as kind of like the beginning of the end of ultimately the Western Roman Empire. But the dominoes now are going to start falling. And we'll get to that next, I mean in the next class, because that plays into Augustine. Uh, but the result is with Valens dead, the emperor in the West, who was Valens's nephew, is going to appoint the, prom- the most prominent general of the day as emperor in the East. And he, he is a man named Theodosius. And he is, he's often called Theodosius the Great. And Theodosius was a lot of things. He was from Spain. But he was also a Nicene Christian. He was an Orthodox Christian. And so he... So th- the bulwark that had supported the Aryan infrastructure in the empire has suddenly had the support kicked out from under it. And so now, I mean, so Theodosius isn't even in Constantinople. He's out fighting wars, but that imperial support is now gone. And so Gregory, of the, there's a few, I, I, I think this is amazing. In Constantinople, which was the largest city in the empire, and the most prosperous city in the empire, bigger than Rome at this point, and the, the locus of all secular power, there was not one church in the entire city that had an Orthodox or a Nicene or true Christian pastor. They were all headed by Arians. And that was the, the work of Valens, the, the former emperor who died in the battle. But there were a few uh, Orthodox Christians left in the city, and so they are going to summon Gregory of Nazianzus to the city to to pastor them, because now he there's no, you know, there's no chance of being stopped by the emperor, because Theodosius is not interested in stopping Orthodox Christianity from spreading. And Gregory is going to move to Constantinople, and he is going to literally start a home church. He starts a church in his house. And he calls it, you know, looking back later in his life, he says it was the new Shiloh where the ark was fixed. And he calls it an Anastasia, which is the Greek word for resurrection. So when you read the Greek New Testament, if you, if you know any girl's name, Anastasia, it means resurrection in Greek. So uh, he says it was an Anast- this home church that he started was an Anastasia the scene of the resurrection of the faith. Because from that home church, under the leadership of Gregory, Orthodox Christianity is then going to spread throughout the city, and the Arians are ultimately going to be expelled. And in a couple of years, in 381, they are going to convene what we call the Council of Constantinople, which is what we call the second ecumenical council. So you had the Council of Nicaea, now you have the Council of Constantinople. And at the Council of Constantinople, they are going to meet again, and they are going to go through the scriptures again, and they are going to point out all the ways in which Arianism is wrong. And all the ways that the teachings of the apostles and the Old Testament, the prophets and the apostles, that's what they referred to it back then, affirm the deity of Christ 
And now, because of the work of Basil and others, the full deity of the Holy Spirit as well. So they're, they're going to really flesh out what the Bible has always taught about the nature of God. And so they're going to not draft a new creed. They're going to add just a few sentences strengthening the previous creed. So when I gave you guys a copy of the Nicene Creed, that's sometimes called the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed because that's the product of the second council building on the product of the first. Most people just call the final product the Nicene Creed, and we're, we're done. Um, and so that is going to be the final repudiation of Arianism in the East. So the church has finally been able to settle this issue and restore true teaching. Now it's not going to last long because as we know from history, there's going to be error in every generation. And I see error in the church as following the same model we see in Judges and we see in, in the history of, of the kings in Israel and Judah. You know, there's always going to be, there's, you know, people are going to restore their relationship with God and it's going to take a huge amount of work an effort to restore that relationship, but either their generation or the next is going to cast that aside, and we're and then they're going to have to cry out to God for restoration again. I mean, we see that throughout the Old Testament. I mean, it is so infuriating for me to read like Second Chronicles twenty nine and thirty, and when Hezekiah is restoring Passover to the temple, where it hadn't been celebrated in decades because his father Ahaz was such a colossal schmuck. And that's putting it nicely. And it's like you read 29 and 30, and you just get, you read it, and it's like you can feel the spiritual relief of the people. I mean, you can just, it's like jumping out of the pages of Scripture. It's like they're getting, they can, they are right with God. And then Hezekiah dies, and the next king is just like, (laughs) Well, that was cool. Let's do this instead. And it's just like right back to it. And it's the same thing in Judges. It's the same thing in Exodus. I mean, God, you know, just brought them out of Egypt. And they're like, that was cool. Let's build a calf and worship that. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. But I think what we in the church experience is the same thing. There is this constant, sin still has its way in the world. And there is this constant creeping of false teaching. And we have to be ever vigilant to resist that. And so the church back then is having to resist it. But they're, you know, part of their resistance back then is actually writing a statement of faith for the first time. So now we have to know what the statement of faith says and be able to go to people who are allowing the false teaching to creep in and say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. And we have, to be, we have to know what it teaches before we can know where the false teaching is. So, I mean, it's incumbent on each of us, on the whole church, to be vigilant against false teaching because Arianism is defeated, but there's another heresy in line waiting to rear its ugly head. Did you have a question?
Yeah, it's interesting. In, in the early church, back in, when, in the time that we're talking about, and I would say this is consistently true today, but it, I mean, and I don't want to say it was more consistently true back then, but, well, anyway, yes, to me, the deity of Christ and then what we call the hypostatic union, the full deity and full humanity of Christ, those two things have been under constant attack forever. And those are the linchpins that hold everything together. You've got to know who God is. And all the other doctrines that we have are critically important. But if you get who God wrong is, you're gonna, it's like you start buttoning a shirt. If you start the first button wrong, you're going to end wrong. So you got to, those foundational doctrines, you gotta, you got to make sure where you're starting is the right place. Now, we can work down the line and find some other places where you get a button wrong, but you got the first four right. You've got something to work with. Today, those same things, the deity of Christ, the, human, the full humanity and the full deity of Christ. So I'm saying the fact that Christ is God and the fact that he's fully God and fully man is what I'm saying. Those two things are still under attack. I would say the third thing that's under attack more than ever these days is the authority of Scripture. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the garden. Right. Yeah. I Yeah, and one you know, one guess that I would have and and I don't know that this is I wouldn't paint every single person like this, okay? But the Holy Spirit illuminates truth. So there's a lot of really, really, really exceedingly smart people that have studied the Bible, and they know it backwards and forwards, inside and out, and the Holy Spirit has not illuminated its truth to them. And so, you know, when we talk about that, like right there is testimony to the work of the Spirit. So the people that affirm Christ have had the Spirit moving in them and drawing them to, to Christ. And if the Spirit isn't doing that work, we can't come to Christ on our own. You know, that knowledge is the work of God. And, and that faith, you know, starts with God. So the Spirit is, you know, is a part of that. So, that, I mean, and I don't know that that's the answer for everything that you're pointing to, but that's at least part of it, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, what's the great blasphemy is blasphemy of the Spirit. Yeah, they're not. And, and, and you think about it, they're not humbling themselves because, at least in the case of the Arians, you know, they're, in their pride, they're saying that God is not God. You know, that Jesus is just, he's as much a creation as the bench you're sitting on. 
you know, that's, that's their, what they're ultimately saying. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is just, let me take five minutes to sum up, and I'm going to do a disservice to Ambrose, because uh, he deserves a lot more than five minutes. But let me, let me just, let me sum that up in saying that struggle, these things that we are talking about, that was the, the struggle the Cappadocian fathers were leading, and, and, and their ranks were growing as they marched forward, but they and Athanasius in the east were the ones who, it was them against the world. You know, so, I mean, the emperors were the most powerful man in the world, and they defied them, and they fought for truth, and they suffered in a lot of ways. Basil died young because he was broken by the conflict that he was in. So, that being said, let me, let me just touch on Ambrose really quick uh, in five minutes. And, uh, but while all this was going on in the east, now keep in mind, you still have the whole western empire and this man, Ambrose, is, is going to be the most prominent uh, leader of the church in the West during this same time period. Now remember, Arianism had never penetrated the West in any significant form. But under imperial uh, uh, patronage, it's going to be imposed from the top down on the West. And Ambrose is going to resist that. And he, he's going to be the leader of the church in Milan, which is right there. And Rome by this time had ceased being the capital of the empire, and the, imperi the Western imperial administration was focused in Milan. So that, was, that actually was a position that had a lot of influence, was leading the church in Milan. Um, it'd be like if the capital of the United States was moved from D.C. to Philadelphia, and there was somebody who was the leader of all the churches in Philadelphia. Well, suddenly they've got a lot of bureaucrats and other people that might be in their ranks, you know, in their churches. So they would have some significant influence in the government. And let me, there's a lot to say about Ambrose. But the, the thing that he is most known for is important. So I want to touch on that really quick. And that is this, Theodosius, who was a devout emperor did order, in a fit of anger, a massacre of his own citizens in the city of Thessalonica in, Greek, in Greece. And it was something that he later regretted, and he shouldn't have done it, obviously. And Ambrose is going to learn of it and say, you really shouldn't have done it. And how is he going to do that? Well, Theodosius is going to come to Milan, and he's going to go up to Ambrose's church, and he's going to try to go inside to take the Lord's Supper, and Ambrose is going to stand at the door and say, no, not only can you not enter the church, but you cannot take communion because you have sinned. You, you know, ordered the massacre of 7,000 people. And he's saying, you can receive forgiveness, but you must first be, you know, be made right with God before you can enter this church and take communion. So he is like Basil, he, he's doing more than just staring down the emperor. He is denying the emperor uh, the opportunity to effectively, you know, save his soul. 
And Theodosius, who was devout, he is going to respond actually by subjecting himself to a public humiliation to, to do penance. So he's going to allow the people, he's going to have be, go through the city on a cart and allow people to throw rotten fruit at him, which is so far below the dignity of an emperor, it is hard to describe how low he is lowering himself. But he will do it, and then he will take you know, the Lord's Supper from, from Ambrose. And, and I, don't mean, I don't want this to paint Ambrose with a bad picture because he was actually he was a, a great pastor of his church and he was a great teacher of truth. And there was nothing wrong with what he did with Theodosius, obviously, because Theodosius had done wrong. But what this is going to do is this is going to mark a precedent that in the Middle Ages, other church leaders, other popes, are going to look back to and see the ecclesiastical power being preeminent over the secular power. And that's going to be something that in the Middle Ages, where the popes are ruling like kings and telling kings what to do, they're going to look back to Ambrose and say, see, you kings, you're just kings. This was the emperor of the world. So it's a, it's a powerful precedent that Ambrose is going to set. Now, Ambrose has no idea what's going to come from this. You know, he's trying to make sure that the emperor is right with God. And he's not going to compromise himself by giving communion to a man who essentially murdered 7,000 people. So I don't think what Ambrose was doing was wrong, but the fallout from that centuries later is going to have profound impacts on the church and just on secular politics in the world. And then let me just end on this note, <clears throat> because this is going to have this is, is, is enormous in world history. When Theodosius finally dies, he does two things. One, in 381, he makes Nicene Christi Orthodox Christianity uh, the favored religion of the empire. So now paganism is now out, totally. Not just the emperors are Christians, now the empire is a Christian empire. Fourteen years later, Theodosius will die. And when he dies, he makes his two sons, Honorius and Arcadius, who are both children, 8 and 12 years old, emperors of the West and emperors of the East. And he puts powerful generals by their side to actually govern in their names. And never again will the Eastern and Western Roman empires be united. So in less than 100 years, the Western Empire will have fallen and be overrun by a vast tide of barbarians. But the East will persist for another thousand years and finally succumb 40 years before Columbus discovers America. So, yes. Uh, Theodosius had a general who was one of his right-hand men who was at chariot races there in the city and uh, it's kind of a long story but that general uh, sort of favored one of the charioteers far more than the other and, and did some things that that favored it and that inflamed the passions of the crowd and the crowd kind of grabbed him and killed him and Theodosius said okay 
I'll kill you. Um, and so all the people in the, the Hippodrome, basically, they just closed the gates. The soldiers came in and just said, slaughtered them all. And that was that. No, it had nothing to do with the church. But Ambrose said, that is conduct unbecoming a Christian man. And if you are going to be right with God, you must repent. That's really what the issue was. So, and yeah, it is church discipline on, an, on a universal Im- empire scale. No, seriously, that's church discipline right there. So let me close with prayer really quick. Sorry. Lord, we thank you for, for the example of these leaders that you have blessed us with. I pray that you will help us to emulate them both in their, their fervor for right teaching, the teaching of truth of who you are, but also in their lives and how they conducted themselves. I pray that you will give us the strength to emulate them as they sought to emulate Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.